Welcome to Education Talks, I'm David Burke. If you're organising a conference, a lecture or an important meeting, rather than asking the question, do we prefer in-person or a hybrid format? Instead, we should be asking, do we want to be an inclusive community or not? That's what Dr. William E. Donald, Associate Professor of Sustainable Careers and Human Resource Management at the Ronan Institute, wants academic leaders and event organisers to consider. And here's today's guest on Education Talks. Dr. William E. Donald, welcome to Education Talks. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invite, Dave. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. And uh, where are you joining us from? Uh, I'm in a village uh, called Oakley, just outside of uh, Basingstoke in the, the south of England. Oh, very good. And how are, how are things over there? Yes, just getting back to uh, back to normal today. So uh, shifting into autumn now. <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you here. And um, I actually reached out to you on Twitter just recently um, because I read your article uh, on the uh, online on the Times Higher Education website. Um, it really struck a chord with me. But before we get to discussing that article and the whole issue of events for inclusivity, um, hybrid events, that is, hybrid events for inclusivity. I want you to give uh, listeners and viewers a bit of an understanding of your background and experience in education. Around a decade ago, I transitioned from industry, uh, working as a graduate recruiter for an investment bank in London, uh, into academia to study for a PhD focusing on the student perceptions of graduate employability. And it was always my plan to make that uh, transition, but it was external factors um, of a chance event that drove the timing of the career pivot. So in February 2012, um, I contracted an illness that left me bedbound for a year, uh, permanently disabled with reliance on a wheelchair, and uh, I'm predominantly housebound. So uh, that put pay somewhat to, uh, to traveling around different universities mm. to to uh, you know, flying to different places, running all these events. Um, so between 2014 and 2017, I completed um, PhD part-time under the supervision of uh, Professor Yehuda Barak and Dr. Melanie Ashley, uh, both at Southampton Business School, um, at the University of Southampton in the UK. And since 2017, I've had the privilege to collaborate with fellow academics and practitioners and these people are based all around the world. I've collaborated with people in Australia, Canada, Finland, Hungary, India, United Arab Emirates, uh, the UK and the United States of America. So it's really opened up brilliant opportunities to work with different people, understand different cultures, see the different challenges on a global uh, scale that are facing uh, facing higher education, graduate employment, uh, and you know wider aspects within that uh, ecosystem. So I'm currently an associate professor of sustainable careers and human resource management. Um, I've got affiliations with the Ronin Institute uh, in the USA. They're set up as a almost alternative to academia in some sense, in that they're a collective of independent scholars that uh, come from all different backgrounds, all different um, areas of study, of interest. Um, and we don't have departments there, actually. Instead, it's uh, we have research groups that form organically and, and disband and reform. Uh, so it's a really exciting uh, project that uh, 
Professor John Wilkins set up uh, over there. And then uh, I'm also a, uh, a visiting guest at uh, the University of Southampton um, with my old uh, supervisor, Professor Yehuda Barak again. So uh, I'm very lucky there. And then just to wrap up uh, this bit, I'm um, also the managing editor of the JAL Journal of Skills Development, um, which is an open access journal based in Hungary that uh, Dr. Judith Beek uh, set up. Um, and it's brilliant. It targets uh, young people, gives a forum for early career academics, practitioners to share their, their insights. Um, and I also sit on the editorial board of various journals, keynote speakers, all of that kind of jazz. And uh, I'm a qualified life coach. So uh, that's me. Wow. wow. So uh, you're obviously someone with many great achievements and deep involvement in academia. So you recently published the article that I mentioned earlier, and it was entitled Rejecting Hybrid Conferences as the New Norm Reeks of Ableism. Um, so that was published in the Higher Education, uh, sorry, the Times Higher Education in August. Uh, tell us about this and what led you to penning the article. Perfect. So, um, as you say, I published this in the Times Higher Education, and they actually changed the title of my article. The content stayed the same. So as you say, they uh, referred to it as rejecting hybrid conferences, reeks of ableism as a kind of hook, uh, a provocative, uh, uh, you know, click engagement. Um, but the original title that I submitted was actually Overcoming Systemic Barriers to Inclusion in Academia, the Case for a Hybrid Conference Format. Um, because it's not just people with disabilities or who are disabled, depending on what uh, region and preference you prefer for the language. Um, it's a whole host of people that are impacted, and we'll we'll talk about that a bit more in, uh, in a minute. But um, the premise of this was that in 2020 and 2021, um, we got hit by a global pandemic, which is still uh, having ripple effects around the world at the moment. And um, one of the impacts of this was that in-person conferences were temporarily suspended, and we pivoted to um, you know, pretty much fully virtual conferences, or they didn't take place at all and just got postponed indefinitely until such point as people felt they were happy to meet in person again. So this year in 2022, most returned to in-person only. There were a few hybrid options, mm -hmm. but they often felt like an afterthought or a tag on and didn't offer a, an experience that I felt was reflective of what could be done with the gains that we've made from a, a terrible situation of the, the pandemic. Um, yeah. yeah. So this more or less excluded people. Exactly that. And um, as I say, so I'm a um, housebound academic. I physically can't get to these conferences, um, which was the case before the the pandemic, you know, occasionally someone would let me dial in and present for 15 minutes and tick a box, add a line on a CV, but it's not the same. And the argument was that we can't do this because the technology doesn't exist and it's not feasible. But actually, suddenly in 2020, 2021, we could. Um, so these excluded participants, um, they might be people who have children or elderly parents that they have to, to care for. Um, you might have uh, pregnant academics who are unable to fly due to the um, trimester in which they're, they're in. Um, 
you've also got individuals that live in remote places in the world and it's actually really expensive and takes sometimes two days of travel to get to any of these conferences because of the lack of interconnecting uh, transport options. Um, and you've also got people that can't get visas to go to certain countries that might not feel comfortable going to those countries in person for a whole variety of reasons. Um, and of course, the main one being that conference fees and accommodations are, are really expensive and it's a, a major problem in itself, but somewhat separate to, uh, to this at the moment. But uh, the issue you've got there is if you can't get access to those pots of funding, you've got two options. You don't go or you pay for it out of your own pocket. And of course, if you're in certain countries where the conference fee is one, two, three months of your entire income and there's no other funding, then yes, mm -hmm. sometimes the conference might waive some of the fees on a case-by-case -case basis, but it becomes a social capital networking, uh, you know, trying to work around that rather than an accessible and inclusive environment. Yeah. What are some of the greater knock-ons for not offering hybrid? So... For me, there's several. Well, the first being that certain voices and diverse views are excluded. Um, so what you'll often see is that perhaps more established academics who have access to larger pools of funding, who might be at more prestigious universities that have more access to, to funds, they can send their, uh, their delegates, if you like, to these, these conferences. And other people physically can't do that. And so you get a bit of an echo chamber and people turn up and they pat themselves on the back and say, this is brilliant. We've achieved these uh, these things and it feels really inclusive and, you know, it's quite quite diverse and we've got, uh, got these different events and different options. But actually, it's a very skewed thing, you know, as we find on social media, right? You can, you can go on Twitter and if you don't like people, you, or their views, you can block block those views, and very quickly you get an echo chamber of everyone that agrees with you. You think your view is the only one, but it's often not that uh, not that simple. Um, so for me as well, um, I do some guest lecturing, and there's impacts on those students because if I'm not having access to these venues, and other academics are not having access to those venues, then their students are missing out on you know, some of the latest developments in the, the field or different ways of thinking, engaging with scholars from different institutions, different countries, um, you know, even different ways of researching. We often think it's, a, you know, we talk about a particular topic and think that uh, everyone has a similar view on that. But there's a lot of disagreement, different methodological approaches that we use. So, um, you know, for someone that loves having those discussions, I miss that uh, that opportunity. Um, not so much for, for me, I'm, I'm very lucky with the networks I have, but for other academics, it limits um, the access to informal networks, jobs and collaborative opportunities. And I feel really sorry for, for some of those people because there's some really talented people and a lot of the networking, especially at some of the big conferences in our field, leads to interviews, leads to tenure track, leads to opportunities. Um, and those people don't necessarily get that opportunity. Actually, some people 
beginning to care a bit more about carbon footprint and thinking, is it worth flying for three days to present for 15 minutes to, you know, go around a, a nice city, have a have a beer or two, do, you know, some sightseeing walks mm. and fly back home again and do that two or three times a year? Is it sustainable? Is it preferable? Is it something we actually want to be doing anymore? Yeah. Uh, just on the point of, um, you know, people being having that limited access to those sort of uh, informal networks basically being on the outside of where um, people are making connections and decisions are maybe being made. Um, it must have been the opposite for people during the pandemic. That, that There must have been like a greater sense of inclusion during that time. For that to be taken away must be quite a, quite a, a very almost you know, shattering experience. Absolutely for them. And this is the interesting thing. I've had so many fairly junior academics messaging me saying, thank you so much for raising this point. We don't feel comfortable or able to do it ourselves because we fear that there might be a backlash and it might impact our career opportunities. And, you know, there's a lot of good things about academia. Right? I'm not here purely to, to bash that. And actually, we've seen um, some research I was doing as well, looking at graduate recruitment during the pandemic. It was really interesting because... We had to use a lot of technology during that time. So the thought process was, well, this is going to remove some of the biases in the recruitment process and we'll get more diverse groups of candidates coming through and, and more diverse cohorts. And this could be a really good thing. But actually, the opposite happened where people actually ended up hiring some of the least diverse cohorts that they'd seen. And my kind of speculation for that is that when you have algorithms or some kind of technology applied to something, it gives the impression of removing bias, but it actually mm. applies bias consistently mm. to everyone. So if all the people who are designing it, coding it, mm. are of a particular um, you know, composition, for want of a better word, then mm. uh, the people that they hire end up being very similar. So it was, it was interesting. We thought it would be more diverse, and there are now ways of doing that and the technology is improving and being applied differently but uh, unexpected consequences right now uh, when we're going to hybrid events and you know people are essentially people who've had the opportunity to participate are much more frequently missing out it sort of goes really at odds with uh, a lot of the i guess commitments and values that we hold in in education that's right yeah and and in broader society as well, you're, you're absolutely right there. But, uh, so the three for me are the whole kind of uh, EDI agenda, looking at uh, you know, the um, equality inclusion aspect. Um, then you've got the uh, technological advancement aspect and the sustainability um, agendas. And particularly some of the large conferences in, in my field, in the field of management, um, it's quite a broad application of management. You're looking at lots of different ways. There's corporate social responsibility, uh, ethical considerations, um, looking at how to get more diverse cohorts of, of people, how to retain those people. Um, and it's quite interesting. I, one of the conferences led with their main theme this year of technological advancement and uh, then ran the entire conference in person only, which uh, was very, very bizarre. And when I pointed this out to them, they seemed to not understand the uh, 
the contradiction there. But uh, um, I, again, nobody's perfect. We've all got opportunities to improve, and this needs a collaborative approach that brings everyone along for the journey. So there's no benefit at all in either side of this entrenching themselves and painting the other ones as completely unreasonable because there are, you know, uh, barriers that we'll discuss later to running hybrid mm. conferences. Um, yes. But it's very interesting how they have these particular agendas and are very vocal about them and say that they're an inclusive space. But actually, the reality feels slightly different for those that can't participate in those areas. Yes. So um, if there are people out there listening and watching who may be about to organise uh, a conference or an education event, um, what can what can they do about it? So there's a, a few things. As I say, it's a really tricky, tricky thing to manage and you have to really want to engage with this. So one of the, uh, the points I put to conference organisers, one conference sent out a questionnaire to... Uh, to the membership and they said do you prefer in-person or hybrid formats and around 80 percent of people said well we prefer in person and so they said right great we'll run in person only mm. and i said all right but as is usual as we know in in society you can get the outcome you want by asking the the right question it's a yeah. used somewhat uh, extensively at the moment in uh, media and politics so i said to them let's reframe that and say do we want to be an inclusive community or not? And suddenly everyone says, oh, we want to be an inclusive community. Yes, of course. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, to be that, you're going to need to offer these opportunities. So there are odds with the, the conflicting views and just adds a bit of complexity to the, uh, to the topic as well. Um, mm -hmm. But it's a great opportunity, I think. Um, as human beings, we often don't like change. We're very resistant to change. Um, I was a change manager uh, working in IT for a bank before I moved into recruitment. And getting people on board, buy-in, um, it's crucial. And the COVID-19 pandemic is a huge global um, disruptor chance event. It's a brilliant opportunity, I think, to take stock now and say, okay, what was good from before the pandemic that we want to keep? Because you don't throw everything out and start from from scratch but you also need to think what opportunities came across from the pandemic that we can now take forward to improve the opportunities that um that we have and, and also our role as uh, an industry i mean um we, i talk mainly about academics but these conferences often we do collaborations with uh, practitioners with policy makers so there's a significant impact on society and we really need to be sharing that knowledge a lot better so i also call um you know i'm i'm still a relatively junior academic in that I, i'm not a professor i don't uh, don't lead my own research group so i think that we really need buy-in from some senior voices um you know i'll i'll be vocal and and shout into the void and and hopefully there'll be there'll be some uh, pragmatic changes that come about from that but it also relies on as with any field as with any any walk of life in your workplace there are people that are highly influential and have various power controls and dynamics within particular spaces and 
if we can't get the buy-in from those people, then it's a non-starter. Um, so I also think it's really helpful if you can get people onto your organizing committee who have these alternative views, you really need to listen to them as well. I've, I've seen a couple of people who've said, I've sat on these committees, I've said these things, they've said, oh, that's a, that's a good idea. We'll, we'll think about it in the future, but it's not feasible at the moment. It gets tabled and shelved. And then you have the interesting dynamic of I go to these people and say, you're meant to be representing um, us. What, what are you doing? They said, well, we did. But the overriding view of the committee, which had a different composition in the power dynamic, felt that it wasn't a, uh, you know, a, a high priority thing. Um, and I guess you can always go to the, uh, the extreme option as well, which is to, to boycott certain conferences mm -hmm. because many of them are run as profit generators. And uh, like all things in life, you can, uh, you can affect change en masse if you, uh, if you target particular uh, companies or particular uh, options. Sure, that might be a bit effective because, um, well, even from a good business point of view, it does make sense to try and maximise participation, doesn't it? Um, so on that point, um, or related to that, is uh, what about fees? Like how should uh, fees be arranged for these events? Because sometimes, it, you know, it is hard to provide the same experience online. In fact, it's, it's basically it's impossible to create an online experience that might be just as perhaps rich as in person depending on how it's how it is organized um so what what sh should we do there with with fees i think that's a, a great question and it's one of the main points that is front and center of this this debate um certainly the moment you engage with anyone on this topic who organizes these conferences who's in charge of these conferences it's their go-to default of it's too expensive. It's too. It takes too much time, um, and we don't can't get the quality offering a hybrid. So your your whole cost quality time triangle from project management, where you normally get one of the three, but in this case there uh, there are you don't get uh, any of them. So for me, it's fair to charge the same in person fee and virtual fee if you're offering the same um, opportunities, the same sessions everything's hybrid. Everyone engages with each other and it's very seamless. Now, as you say at the moment, the technology is improving, but I don't think it's quite there to offer that. You can get all the paper sessions and uh, keynotes, plenaries. I just don't think you can get the networking aspects quite there yet. Mm. But then you've got the argument to say, well, why don't you invest that money from virtual participation in, in developing that uh, that technology and you know each conference doesn't have to have their own you can collaborate together and we saw you know zoom and teams and various other uh, software rocket in popularity in the pandemic uh, and adopted very widely very quickly and um, so that was one of the problems for me I, I boycotted a conference this year that accepted two of my papers but they wanted to charge the same fee for virtual attendance as in person and um, and I originally paid, paid the fee and uh, I shortlisted 11 sessions that I wanted to go to and nine of them were in person only. And the problem was the other two I was presenting at. So, um, you know, when, when you're paying $800, it's a lot of money um, 
and I just felt that it it wasn't worthwhile. Mm. Now that conference did give me a, a full refund, but before they did that, their counter narrative was that well, you have to remember, Will, that you're not paying for flights, you're not paying for accommodation, and I said, okay, that feels a bit ableist because mm. how do the flights or the accommodation impact the conference that you're providing that I'm attending? They in no way enhance or make it any less. And if other people don't want to do that, they have the option of not flying. Quite often they want to and they turn it into a, a extended holiday afterwards or they'll use mm -hmm. it to catch up with people and they might have it funded. But mm -hmm. it's a separate entity and I think it's very dangerous to start going down the route of saying, oh, well, the total cost is less and therefore, you know, you, you should be grateful that uh, you're not having to pay these additional uh, fees. Uh, and then the, uh, I guess the other option is that uh, you think about, can you offer one day that's entirely hybrid? So you still have people in person who want to be there on that day, but you have completely hybrid rooms, big screens, everything's done that room. And then the other days of the conference are done in, uh, in a more uh, traditional format. But you pro rata the cost. You say, okay, it's a four-day conference. We were going to charge $800. It's $200 for the one day. Um, if you can do it for free, great, but it's not always possible. Um, and that feels a bit more realistic because people can still engage, um, but uh, you don't price people out who are paying this for themselves because there's this this view that oh, the universities pay for it, so they're not even paying for it. You know, you, you, you mm -hmm. get your funding. And, and yes, some people are in that situation, but you've got independent scholars, scholars from institutions that don't have that level of funding, whole variety of other reasons that uh, that's not possible. So there really is, you know, some good opportunities here for event organisers to really maximise that participation. If they just think a little bit more, I guess, creatively um, and, and reflect on some of the successes we've had in the past couple of years. Um, I want to um, actually, and in fact, I want to also add that I'm taking on board a lot of this information because I'll be uh, helping with a number of events over the next 12 months. So uh, it is uh, very good to, to think about this. Um, I wanted to ask you, though, uh, as we finish up, uh, what are some future projects and things that you're currently working on and, and perhaps looking forward to? Uh, sure. So I'm I'm really excited at the moment. I'm uh, working on an edited collection book. Uh, and the way that works is you get different academics to each write single chapters. And you have one overall editor that uh, sources the chapters, um, <coughs> excuse me, agrees which chapters are going to go into the book. Uh, so I'm the sole editor for the, the book. And we've got uh, contributors at the moment from 11 countries, five continents, um, and I made it really clear to the publisher that I wanted um, at least a 50-50 uh, gender split, whereby at least half of the contributors don't identify as male. Because, again, the problem with, you know, sitting here, albeit as disabled as a, 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 white, uh, a white male, as it were, um, I think it's really important that we have diverse voices. And otherwise, you get people inviting people that, share the same views as them that, um, you know, are in their echo chambers, are their, their friends from particular projects. And I wanted this book to be much more diverse, much more global, 
and bring established and new voices to the field. So we're looking at um, establishing and maintaining sustainable career ecosystems for university students and graduates. Uh, so looking at the university and student role, the employer and the graduate side, um, and then what sustainable careers in the future of work might look like. Uh, and that's due for publication in autumn uh, next year. Sounds really interesting. And um, I just also wanted to ask, uh, Will, uh, how can people connect with you? Uh, brilliant. So I'm, I've got lots of uh, <laughs> various outlets for that, um, which I imagine we might be able to put in a in a comments box under the uh, the video, possibly. But uh, um, there's free access to the Times Higher Education article for those that can't access it uh, via ResearchGate. There'll be a link uh, for that. Um, and then, of course, email, LinkedIn, and I have a personal website as well. So uh, always happy to to connect with people and also to hear different uh, different opinions and different uh, sides as well, different perspectives, because it's always important in life to consider different options and to modify one's way of thinking as new information emerges. And as a society, we're not always great at doing that. We entrench into our... Uh, our particular position and hold there um, regardless. So uh, I'm, I'm very open. You might disagree with the, with the content that I've provided, uh, and I'm equally as happy to engage with that as to, to people that say, yes, well, yes, we're, we're <laughs> thank you for bringing this to, to our attention. Well, fantastic. Well, what we'll do is we'll include the, uh, the link to the article, uh, your email, uh, link to LinkedIn, um, and your personal website in the uh, description of the video and in the uh, details for the podcast. Uh, Dr. William E. Donald, it's been a pleasure. I hope we can catch up again in the future. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Dave. I, I really appreciate it. And I wish you all the best with what looks like a fantastic array of talks you've got coming up uh, on your new podcast.